focus on Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for praying with us. Please continue to pray. Um, our scripture reading today uh, is from Mark 8, verses 22 through 26. What we typically do when we read it, when we're together, is we stand. We stand together, uh, recognizing the authority of God's word over our lives. So if you're able to right now where you are, uh, please stand out of uh, recognition that God's word um, gives us the right perspective. It has authority over our lives. So this is Mark 8, starting at verse, verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees, walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. The word of the Lord. You can be seated. Good morning, Christ community, wherever you are. I'm sure everyone watching probably knows me, but if you're visiting with family or friends, uh, my name is Pat. I currently serve as one of four elders of our church. Uh, it is a privilege, as always, to speak to you from God's Word. Uh, if you're wondering why Craig and I are wearing jackets, it's because it is frigid uh, in the sanctuary, which makes sense since there's only four of us here. It's not worth heating. Um, there's actually a lot of, as I thought, uh, cool things about this morning for us. For one, I don't have to be done in exactly 28 minutes and 4 seconds in order to get out of the sanctuary for our next service. And you all don't even have to put on real clothes to be here. And if your phone rings, I can't hear it. And I know that all of you who didn't buy stock in Zoom or YouTube or uh, whatever other streaming device platforms are out there are kicking yourselves now, but... We are grateful that we get the opportunity to be here in this place like this. Well, our text this morning is only five verses long, and yet its placement in the book of Mark is really striking. See, Mark's gospel account moves from one scene to the next very quickly, but these five verses are right in the middle of the entire book. And combined with the next section, these verses form a turning point in the, six, in the 16 chapters of Mark. So this account starts in Bethsaida, which is a city a short distance northeast of the Sea of Galilee, the hometown of many of the 12 men who were Jesus' first disciples. And if we think about where they've come from thus far, Jesus had just fed 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread and a few small fish. And the disciples witnessed this firsthand. And then they got into their boat, and once they had left the shore, they realized, shoot, we didn't bring any bread with. And it's kind of funny in and of itself, but then they start, they start arguing about who should have brought it. And Jesus picks up on this, and he questions them, saying, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? 
And a few verses later, he repeats, do you not yet understand? The questions that Jesus asks points to a blindness. So they have seen the mighty works of Jesus, and yet they do not really see him. The entire previous section has an emphasis on blindness, but in our section this morning, there is an emphasis on sight. Now, here's something that I found fascinating. In the English language, verses 23 to 25 use a few different words referencing sight. But in the original Greek, which I don't read, somebody told me this, there are eight different words for sight used in nine different instances referring to seeing just in these verses, 23 to 25 alone. So it seems fairly obvious that Mark wants to show us something about sight, the significance of truly seeing. But more than that, as Scott helped us to see a couple weeks ago, we're going to learn about the power of Jesus. This miracle will reveal to us more about who Jesus is and what Jesus is like. And my hope for us this morning is that in the midst of the chaos ensuing in our world, that these verses would bring us hope. Let me pray for us before we jump in. Father, I do ask that you would bring us hope, that as we look at Jesus, as we see him in your word, that we would be reminded that we are a people with great hope because of the person and work of Jesus. Open our spiritual eyes this morning to hear from you, to see you clearly. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look at verse 22 and jump in. It says, And they came to Bethsaida. There are a few things to note here in the context. First, as I mentioned before, Bethsaida was located fairly near to the location spoken of in chapter 6, where Jesus fed 5,000 people. So it's reasonable to assume that the people in this city knew Jesus very well, or at least knew of his fame from either a personal encounter or word of mouth retelling of the miraculous event. And so it's not surprising then what happens next. If we continue in verse 22, it says this, And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. So, of course, they brought this man to Jesus. They wanted the man to be healed of his sight. Surely these were friends of this man, and we have no reason to believe that they believed that Jesus was the Son of God, but they certainly believed in the power of his touch. They believed that Jesus could make this man see, or they would not be begging him to touch him. Now, Jesus often healed by touching, as, we'll see, as we've seen in multiple accounts thus far in the Gospel of Mark. But don't lose sight of the fact that in touching the sick and the blind, in this case, Jesus demonstrates compassion. There were a lot of reasons that someone might have been blind in that age. Diseases with no cure, poor hygiene, injuries without medical care. But no matter the reason, blindness would have left someone isolated and rejected by the masses. But Jesus, as we've seen him do before, comes near to those whom others see as untouchable, and he touches them. And this is, in fact, one of the incredible blessings of having an incarnate God, a God who became man. He could extend an actual hand. And after he touches the man, what does he do? Look at verse 23. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. Well, why did he do that? Why would he take the man away? 
Well, certainly it's the case, as we've seen in multiple accounts up until this point in Mark, that Jesus didn't want to make a public scene. He was ushering in the kingdom of God, but he was doing it on his terms. He was doing it in his timing. But I also think this says something about connection. Jesus wanted to be with this man, and in fact, Jesus touches him. Remember back in chapter 5 and verse 28, when the woman believed that if she just touched the garments on Jesus, that she would be healed. Well, that's not the case here. The touch doesn't heal, which must have been somewhat of a shock, possibly even a disappointment to this man's friends. They begged Jesus to touch him because they knew that Jesus had the power to heal. And Jesus does touch him, and he does have power to heal. But his plans for this man were different. And so when Jesus comes to this man, I picture him gently taking the man's arm and leading him and guiding him and establishing connection and relationship with this man that asks for his trust. Now, I don't have any friends who are completely blind, but I can imagine that giving your arm to a man that you've never met when you are blind and trusting him to lead you away from what is familiar is a rather vulnerable and exposing experience. Jesus was giving this man personal attention. Jesus was directing his steps. And look at what comes next in the second part of verse 23. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? Now look, I don't exactly know why Jesus spit into his hands, or rather on his eyes, but we can make some inferences. He's actually done it two other times, both in the healing of a deaf man in chapter 7, and he'll do it again with another blind man in chapter 9. But we can say, what we can say is that it was very personal. Apparently, this wasn't an uncommon Jewish practice, though it probably seems somewhat repulsive to you or me to think of anyone doing this to us. It was a very intimate and personal engagement on the part of Jesus. But then something interesting happens. Jesus says to the man, do you see anything? And this is the only time in all four gospel accounts where Jesus asked about the results of the miracle that he had just performed. And we'll talk more in a minute that it's the only miracle of healing that is done in two separate stages. And after this first stage, he asks, do you see anything? Well, it's certainly not the case that Jesus didn't know the answer to the question. Rather, he's asking the question because he wants the response. And look at this response from the man in verse, seven, in verse 24. And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like the trees walking. Can you imagine Jesus' response? Gah! Shoot! Trees? I know I've done this before. How did I screw that up? Clearly that's not what happened. Jesus didn't use the wrong amount of pixie dust. This is exactly what he wanted to happen. The man's response suggests that he was probably born with sight, right? He at least knew what trees actually looked like. And I imagine his response at this partial healing was not one of disappointment, but of incredible delight, albeit somewhat confused. Well, last Memorial Day, here in Urbana, at the tail end of our whole church cookout, 
You remember back in the days when we were actually able to hang out in groups larger than 10, closer than six feet apart, we played a game of softball. And those of you who were on the field that day likely remember when someone, I have no idea who this was, hit a pop fly up to center field where I happened to be standing. No one else was around, and so I decided to go for it. Mistake number one. I put my hands up, mistake number two, and I waited patiently for that ball to descend, mistake number three. I waited so patiently, in fact, so very patiently with the fruit of the spirit of patience that the ball, the ball literally slammed right into my face. Craig's laughing because he was there. Now, that was certainly an embarrassing moment, as I had seen other MVPs, like, you know, Grady, Elliot, and Titus, Cody, catch similar balls. Now, I'm not God's gift to sports. That fact is well known. But I assure you, this error was not because I lack basic hand-eye coordination. It's because I lack depth perception. Most of you wouldn't know this about me, but I am actually legally blind in one of my eyes. And what that means is that if I shut my good eye... I would be able to walk around and not bump into things. I can see color and basic shapes, but the only reason I can tell the doctor that the top letter on the chart is E is because it's always an E. I basically have about 10% vision in my one eye. And so as I was writing this, I actually got up a few times and I walked around covering my good eye, and I imagined what it would have been like for this man. And I kept thinking, if someone came to me and laid their hands on me, and when I blinked, if that 10% went up to 25% or 50%, I think I would actually start crying. See, the shock factor in that moment of having any bit of my sight restored would have been absolutely amazing. And I imagine that's what it was like for this man. See, he had tasted the power of Jesus in that moment, and though he saw men like trees, the bigger exclamation point here is that he could see. As I mentioned earlier, nearly every word for sight or see available to Mark in the original language is used here. And specifically the words, and he looked up, is actually a play on words that would have been heard as to regain sight. But not fully. Miraculously, but not fully. But look what happens next. In verse 25. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. <coughs> Two things happened here. First, Jesus laid hands on the man's eyes again. To say it again, this is the only time where Jesus acted in two phases to heal someone. More on that in a minute. The second thing that happened is that when the man opened his eyes, he saw everything clearly. That in and of itself is absolutely astonishing. 2020 vision, something I don't plan to ever experience this side of heaven. The delight in this man, the pure joy that he must have had in that moment. But at that very, at the very end here, the words really do matter. There are three words used in this last verse to refer to sight. One means to see accurately. The other means to see perfectly, but the third means to see clearly, actually to fix one's eyes. 
The trajectory in the language here means that his sight had been restored to absolute crystal clear perfection. He can see near, he can see far, he's not colorblind, he can catch a fly ball without fear of a black eye. He's able to do the smallest, to see the smallest details in focus without strain. His physical blindness is healed. And we can appreciate that today. Today, today. Sickness hurt. Or sickness and, and hurt and, and healing. These are all themes that are around us right now. No one in our church has walked through anything quite like what we've been experiencing in our world recently. But every one of us and everyone on earth wants a similar outcome. For as few of people to die as possible, for the virus to turn into nothing more than a normal flu, for vaccines to be created, for the curve to go down, and for all the suffering to end. Of course we want that. Craig and I talked two days ago about this morning, and we came to the conclusion that we had to talk about the coronavirus. Specifically, we had to talk about how the Word of God, in fact, every passage, but in specific, this passage, speaks the hope of the gospel to us in the midst of coronavirus. And in the midst of an order a day ago to take shelter in your own home. Because in a world of confusion, in a world of confusion, what we know is that God's word brings hope. And so I want to do that. The healing in our passage this morning happens in two stages, a partial healing and a complete healing. First, the man can see imperfectly, and then the man can see perfectly. Mark puts these four verses right in the middle of the book, and they are intended to tie together the sections that come right before and right after. In the last section, from Mark 8, verse 18, we read this from Jesus to the disciples. He said to them, Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And isn't it rather interesting that Mark follows up that account just a few sentences later with the account of a man who has eyes, but quite literally can't see. And then only to have that man be healed to see perfectly. See, the disciples had just witnessed Jesus feed thousands of people with a few pieces of bread and a few fish. And yet when they get into the boat to depart, they start freaking out that they don't have enough food. You see, they saw Jesus, but they didn't really see Jesus. They saw his power, but it didn't satisfy their fears. It didn't satisfy the angst in their souls. But then after this section, which Craig will get into next week, you have Jesus asking the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter, in a well-known verse, Peter replies to him, you are the Christ. Which means Peter knew that Jesus was the one sent by God to save his people. But when Jesus starts talking to Peter then about suffering, when Jesus starts talking about suffering that will lead him to the cross, Peter pulls him aside and rebukes him and says, no, Jesus, that's crazy. Don't talk like that. You're not going to die. See, Peter got some of it. He saw part of Jesus and he was willing to follow him, but he didn't get all of it. He saw Jesus in ever increasing ways and he has throughout these first eight chapters in Mark, but he saw him partially like a man who looks like a tree. See, the friends of the man in our passage today pleaded with Jesus to touch him so that he would be healed. 
And when Jesus took the man's hand and led him out of the city, that man had no idea what was going to happen. But when Jesus healed him partially, he began to have hope. And then when Jesus healed him fully and his sight was restored perfectly, can you imagine what it must have been like when he opened his eyes, when he could see the clouds in the distance, to then turn to gain his focus and to gaze into the eyes of his healer. And he fixes his eyes on Jesus, who made him see. That's what Mark wants for us, to fix our eyes on Jesus and to see him clearly. Now, this man wasn't a Christian at this point. He didn't understand Jesus any more than the disciples did. And those men had walked with Jesus and seen his power for years. And still, they had eyes but could not see. The first eight chapters of Mark and the last eight chapters of Mark are littered with a condition that I'll call spiritual blindness. But right smack dab in the middle of the book, one man is brought to Jesus, a man who was blind but now could see. And so this loud question stands out to us here from Mark. Do you see Jesus? See, spiritual blindness is the condition of the heart that every person in all of creation shares. And so if you're watching this right now, you are prone to spiritual blindness. It is that part of us, all of us, that fails to fully trust Jesus, to fully take him at his word, to see him clearly as the all-satisfying God and Savior of all mankind. Spiritual blindness is that part of us that fails to trust in his power, his goodness, and his love for us. And there is no more opportune time for spiritual blindness to threaten us than in times like we find ourselves today, living in a world where everything that was certain three weeks ago is no longer quite as certain. The economy has come to a near standstill, which will cost the world millions of jobs, which means people will suffer. You're sitting in your home watching this on a screen because you've been ordered to by the governor of Illinois. And while he says we'll be released on April 8th, we all know no one really knows for sure. And try explaining that to a six-year-old. The amount of time, or rather the amount of people infected, could exponentially spread for a while. And the death toll certainly will go up. I spoke to my dad two nights ago on his birthday. My dad was in near heart failure a few years ago. Thankfully, he's doing much better now, but if he gets this virus, it could be really bad. He told me he actually works for a technically essential business, as the government calls it, and yet he's self-quarantined and can't go to work, likely for far longer than most of us. This past week in my home, my home was supposed to be a leisurely spring break, yet my home was anything but peaceful. My kids were arguing more than normal, and Pam told me three days ago that we hadn't had any kind of connective conversation for over a week, which I'm sorry about that. We're going to fix that tonight. <laughs> but why is that? I know I'm not alone in this. 
I mean, two weeks ago, we were doing great. The Lord felt near. Pam and I had been experiencing the most joy in our marriage that we had in a long time. But then this storm hit, and we're sitting in the boat, and we're arguing about who forgot to go to the store to get the loaf of bread. Like, quite literally, if you tried to go to the store the other day to get bread, you had to settle for hot dog buns. I'm angry that my work life has been turned upside down and frustrated that I can't really go anywhere because no one will let me sit down in their store. One minute I feel like this whole thing is an overblown social experiment on insanity, and the next day I'm thinking that the death toll is going to skyrocket. I don't know. I'm not a scientist, I'm not a doctor, but I do know it's a mess. Now, are we really suffering? I don't think we need to figure out what counts as suffering or not, but here's how I describe it. If I close my good eye, I'm left seeing through a fog. That's how my brain has felt at times, like I've got 25% vision. The world that I enjoyed controlling, the world that made me feel in control, has been turned upside down, and I have been having a hard time just thinking straight. When that happens, When I'm seeing kind of through a fog, the root of spiritual blindness comes to bear on my life, and it threatens to rob me of peace, of joy, of patience, and on and on. It's all very simple. We, you and I, will lack peace when our eyes do not clearly see Jesus for who he is. We will lack comfort when our eyes do not clearly see Jesus. We will lack joy and hope when our eyes do not clearly see Jesus. But please hear this. This isn't because of the coronavirus. Friends, church, when you lack peace in your soul at any time, it is because you do not truly see Jesus. The spiritual blindness is not caused by what is out there. It's caused, it's not caused by the virus or how the media is reporting on it. True spiritual blindness is caused by what's in here. Spiritual blindness exists because our hearts, yours and mine, are deceitful. Our hearts seek pleasure and satisfaction in so many other places than Jesus. You see, regarding this virus, healing will take place. I'm not a doctor, but from what I read, we will see relief once more ventilators are produced to care for sick patients, and once vaccines are created... Maybe when warm weather comes around, once immunity is built up, and when that happens, though our world will forever be changed by this virus, we will go back to some sort of normalcy. But what we truly need is what Jesus has to offer. You simply cannot hope in anything else. If you hope in a restored financial market that will bring job security, and a vaccine that will calm your fears about COVID-19, you can, you can do that, and I do believe that those things will come. But if this is where your hope ends, in the work of the hands of men, then you will constantly live your life walking around seeing men as trees with partially veiled sight. To live without spiritual blindness is to live with your life clearly centered around Jesus Christ. If that doesn't describe your life, I pray and I plead with you, as I do plead with my own heart, that you would turn from whatever else it is that is your center 
and that you would focus and fix your eyes upon Christ. But I know you sitting at home, most of you, and I know this church, and I know that Christ's community is filled with people who want to worship Jesus with their lives. Our church is filled with people who know that their greatest need is in the need to be forgiven from their sin. We are a church that believes that Jesus, the very Son of God, came to earth to rescue us from a greater disease, greater than blindness, greater than the coronavirus, the disease of our own sin, that he died as a ransom for our sin, that he was raised from the dead, that he is alive and well, and that he is the only object of our hope that will never disappoint. Around 13,000 people have died as of today, and more are going to die, a lot more. The media and national leaders are placing blame. It's China's fault. It's Trump's fault. It's the governor's fault. They're to blame. Fake news is to blame. The world is losing its mind. I'm losing my mind a little bit. Or at least I'm prone to, ang to be anxious like everyone else, because every last one of us is recognizing that we are not in control. The, man, the man's friends brought the man to Jesus to be healed, and they thought they knew how he was going to do it, but they recognized very quickly his plans are different than our plans. God is in control. And I pray, in the midst of this virus, that lives will be saved. But the truth is, the world is going to see a lot more sickness. And they need more ventilators in hospitals and more masks to protect workers and more tests to track the virus. They need us, you and I, to give up common liberties, to give financially. But ultimately, they need Jesus. They need to see him clearly. The world needs to take off the blinders to repent of their sin and turn to Jesus. But not just them. We need, you and I, to see him clearly. And our community, Champaign-Urbana, needs to see Jesus clearly. See, church, we need to be grounded. We have the end of the story. We know that no matter what the death toll is, no matter how many victims there are, no matter what the unemployment rate is, there is one man, the very Son of God, who chose to go to the grave on his own accord so that death and suffering and, and destruction and poverty would not have the last word. We can suffer as people with hope. You need Jesus. And so preach the gospel. What's the gospel? The gospel is the good news that Jesus died for your sin so that if you trust him, ultimately not even death can rob you of hope. So preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel to your MC. Preach the gospel to your kids. Remind them of the beauties of Christ so that when week two of social isolation hits or when more news of deaths or destruction gives us reason to question the hope that we have, they know the gospel. They know a God who loves them. Look at the last verse in this section as I close. What was the last thing that Jesus told the man? Verse 26. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. See, he told, them, he told him that because like in other places in Mark, it was not yet time for the full revelation of Jesus Christ to go forward to the world. But it is now. Especially now. Maybe some of you are at home and you're not anxious at all. Maybe this virus really hasn't even affected your day-to-day -day 
very much. Or maybe you're someone on the other side who is struggling to get through each day because of how much, much things have been turned upside down. Wherever you are, there is a scared world around us who has just lost control. And church, we know who is ultimately in control. Scream his name to those around you. Call your neighbors who have lost their job, and after you help put food on their table, remind them that Jesus gave his life for them. When you're walking your kids around the neighborhood and you see a mom walking her kids, stay six feet away, of course, but stop and ask her what it's been like in her home, how this has affected her, and then remind her that Jesus is in control. I love the picture of Jesus in this account. He doesn't go in like Jonah to Nineveh, screaming, repent and believe, and then leave. He takes the man by the arm, he builds relationship with him, and he offers him hope. Through whatever means are available to you, enter into community with those around you. Those in our church, those in our community, Enter into community with those around you who are scared, who are anxious, who are angry, who are frustrated, who are lonely, who are isolated, who are confused. And remind them that the God who left heaven to enter into the chaotic world is the God who gave his life so that they would have hope that would never disappoint. Let me pray for us. Father, I long to love Jesus in such a way that my hope is secured every second, every minute, every hour of every day for the rest of my life. And yet I know that my heart is prone to wander, that I am prone to forget the promises that you offer us. God, I pray for myself, for our church, for this community, that in the midst of this chaotic time, and after, that the name of Christ would be exalted high, that you would draw people to yourself, that they would recognize that there is one who is in control, and that God gave his life to truly heal us from the disease that would threaten to separate us forever, our sin. God caused people to repent and trust in Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.